0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered
1: by Wharton. And now, from the Jacobs-Levy Center Conference in New York City, with a special focus on financial markets, volatility, and crises, a decade later, this is a Business Radio special presentation of Behind the Markets. Here are your hosts, Jeremy Schwartz and Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel.
2: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree Tree and ETS sponsor. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. We are very excited to bring you this very special edition of the show live from the Jacobs-Levy Equity Management Center's 2018 Conference in New York City. Uh, we don't get to broadcast live from a lot of conferences, but we're here in the Hilton Hotel here from New York. And we're going to have a very special show. Professor Siegel and Bob Schiller were on stage today talking about research on cape ratios, valuations. Uh, we're going to have a, one of the sh- another guest with us, Robin Greenwood, who is a George Gunn professor of finance at banking at Harvard Business School, who will be presenting later here right after our broadcast. Gentlemen, Great. thank you all for joining our show
1: here. Great to be here. Happy to to be here, yes.
2: I just made a quick note. I'm originally representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. discussion is not tied to the office of investment products. These are guests of their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. So, Professor, usually we start the show with a little bit of commentary, market commentary. Uh, The the conference here is also focused on the financial crisis, but we're at very robust markets. Uh, Maybe just sort of start off a little bit of market commentary. What are are you looking at this
1: week? Yeah, you know, what really is moving the markets is the trade and the tariffs and Trump, I mean, you know, when there was a, a tweet that they were uh, starting talks with China, the Dow was up 200 points. And and then when Trump tweeted, uh, we're going to be rough on them, it went down 200 points. <laughs> um, it's bouncing around. I mean, the market, stock market wants this trade thing solved anyway. It wants it over. Um, and um, uh, but it also obviously wouldn't be so near its all-time high if it didn't think it would be over without serious damage, which we hope is right. Um, if, there, if the market's wrong and there's a trade war, I said there's going to be a bear market down 20%. Um, but if, 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 if Trump accedes to, uh, you know, every simple solutions, I think we can see another, uh, you know, 10% pop. In the meantime... Um, we had very, I think this is interesting news, a very soft uh, price indices, both producer prices and consumer prices this uh, week um, for the month of August were well below expectations. Um, now, the Fed is meeting, you know, in 10 days. It's going to, i definitely going to raise rates a quarter percent. But whether it raises in December or not, it really has to do with what kind of data is coming in. If we get really soft Price data in between now and December they may hold off or not, but it 's way too early we 're going to have three more employment reports you know to, to speculate on December, uh, but uh, you know it 's something that the, the market uh, definitely is watching. You know, were talking a lot
2: about Trump, and Bob, you know, in your presentation today, you talked about well, earnings have been very good. Uh, one of the reasons you said, because we have Trump, but then you asked, is, uh, is Trump permanent, was a was question you asked. What, what, any thoughts on just where we are in this market cycle, the, the earnings growth that we're yeah. getting?
3: <clears throat> well, we have an unusual event this year, which is the cut in corporate profits that went into effect this year. It, when you cut the corporate profits tax, from 35 to 21 percent. That's a major, one time only, you think. Now, there might be further cuts, (laughs) but uh, you might also think it's one time only. I don't think that we wanna just think that people are calculating what earnings path will be. There are other, they're doing that, many of them are, but there's other factors that affect the market that are more uh, um, psychological. uh, or or not tied closely to the earnings number. It's it's the general ambiance that we have at this point with the Trump administration and the sense that he has support. This is support for a capitalist, more capitalist economy where we, we reward the winners in full. And that psychology, I think, has an effect on our impressions of where the market is going and how, uh, how dangerous the market is. It feels pretty safe now to most people.
2: It's interesting. We have some behavioral finance experts here. Robin, you do a lot of work in behavioral finance and the psychology of the markets is interesting from everybody studying here. And it's an interesting question, Professor. You've talked about if, you know, early on, if Trump impeached, what would happen? You know, and there's midterm elections. Is it a, positive, a negative? So, Bob's positioning Trump has been, the, the psychology is good for the markets. Um, yeah, I want to I, pick I, up I,
0: on, on, on Bob's point. Uh, during his presentation, he gave this beautiful example of World War I and uh, growth in earnings. That, an example I hadn't heard before about growth in earnings uh, that was just a very quick pop, but the market recognized that it wasn't permanent. And if you look back over history, that actually turns out to be the exception with most examples of earnings pops uh, being accompanied by high increases in prices. And certainly, that's what we're seeing today. And so um, when you see that, I think then you want to start looking for other things in investor behavior, whether it's issuance, whether it's high turnover, whether it's things that people say in the press that kind of can buttress a um, a period of high sentiment.
1: I I think also, you know, Bob, we had a one-time tax cut. Uh, um, That's true. No one's expecting a tax cut again, although the Republicans want another personal tax cut, but not on the business side. Um, there's a question, is, is the tax rate going to go back if the Democrats get the president, in, in not this, this coming year election, obviously, but in 2020, if they get the presidency and control of the Senate and the House, uh, they theoretically have the ability to undo uh, the corporate uh, tax uh, cut that, uh, that, that the Republicans push through. I do like to emphasize that we had just about the highest corporate tax rate in the world before we had this cut. Um and really, even after this cut, we're only, I think, slightly below the average of the European Union. Secondly, uh, Democrats had agreed we needed corporate tax reform. Now they may not have gone as far as Trump and the Republicans went uh, on that because they didn't like certain other aspects. But um, uh, even if the Democrats regain it, uh, there may be some somewhat upward adjustments, but uh, I definitely do not think we're going back to that 35% uh, you know, statutory rate, rate that we had um, prior to the Trump tax cut.
0: So I, I, I think I agree with that, but there is a long-run question of deficits, and I'm not an expert in whether that can be solved uh, using revenues from corporations or whether it's solved on the individual tax front when you're running deficits that are driven by a large tax cut. At some point in the future, unless you curb spending, which there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, you're gonna have to raise taxes in the future. And so I think there is a question as to whether the markets, maybe the markets believe that uh, those future taxes are gonna be on the personal side that's one possibility, or maybe they're just ignoring it. But ultimately, there's got to be some uh, some compensating uh, factor in,
1: in in tax rates going up. Yeah, in that, is, and the long run problems of our deficit are definitely caused by the Medicare, uh, medical spending, and to a lesser extent, Social Security. Um, so, in a way, those. And I think we have to move on those eventually. Um, it could be a combination of, of, uh, of, of tax hikes on the Social Security rate, maybe uncapping it or having a higher tax, uh, charging people more for Medicare. It could be done on the personal side without on the corporate side, although I definitely agree with you. That, that, you know, people will be looking at the corporations also as a, as a source of income and we might see it back. The question is when will that really, you know, step in? And um, The other uh,
3: thing is the uh, wages of I mean, the, the pay to government employees, which Trump announced would not be escalated for inflation this year. Can uh, you sh- unders- back away from that a bit? Well, he I mean, was feeling I pressured. <laughs> I don't know what.
1: He... I, I don't know whether Congress was on board with with that or not. I mean, um...
3: but I'm showing there's some uh, friction here developing yeah. over yeah. over this tax cuts and where it's going to come from.
2: Well, let me just reintroduce our panel here. We've got Robin Greenwood of HBS, Harvard Business School, Bob Schiller, Yale, Professor Siegel. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, uh, and maybe sort of just I want to bring it back to the, your presentation, the conference here. And, and Bob, and you and Jeremy have worked a lot on expected returns, valuations. Uh, you guys met 51 years ago at <laughs> yeah, MIT, standing right. in line. It was interesting uh, commentary on, on how you guys met, how you got to start collaborating and friend, long-term friendship. But maybe talk a little bit about the core debate that we talked about on stage, on what your work on the keep ratio... Says, what do you think about forward returns? I heard a number from Professor Siegel on expected returns. I don't know if I heard a number from you, but sort of outline the debate, what you think from the markets.
3: Well, the CAPE ratio it stands for cyclically adjusted price earnings ratio. Is just a, we, my student John Campbell, he's not a student anymore, he's a professor at Harvard now. Uh, uh, we thought that the, CAPE, the the price earnings ratio has been used for over a century as a way of judging whether a, a stock might be overpriced. If it's priced at 30 times earnings or 50 times earnings, you think that's kind of not likely to hold for long. But the problem with the price-earnings ratio is that it, the, the denominator is a little bit uh, wild. It, it can be affected. It can be negative, actually, for companies. And that's, uh, it doesn't mean that the company is worth less than nothing. So we we just did an adjustment, uh, just a smoothing of earnings. and We're really traditional in terms of our valuation. The idea is that markets uh, sometimes get overly excited about one stock, and they just forget about other stocks. And that that state may last for a while, but it's not going to last forever. So you want to get into those unpopular. You know, I don't think we have any disagreement about this. It's called value investing. It's, we just have a, a slightly, we think, better measure of uh, under- or overpricing of stocks. It's very commonsensical. It's not uh, fancy uh, econometrics. But uh, Campbell and I found that it, uh, does, uh, it's, it does predict long-horizon returns, not tomorrow's return. Nobody can predict that generally.
2: Now, one of the things that Professor Siegel says is, well, for the last 30 years... It was very. It it always said that you were overvalued. Any any commentary on Professor Siegel's commentary around that?
3: Well, that's the the cape is almost always above the mean. Yeah, Yeah. uh, one reason value. Well, yeah, one reason value investing is hard is that boom periods often last longer than you'd ever think, and so uh, it's been high. Not always it was below average, as you pointed out in your talk today, it was below average in two thousand and nine uh,
1: but that 's about the only time yeah. i don 't even think it got below average after the dot com bust uh, if i 'm remem- remembering the chart um,
3: it came down a lot I d- it did I come down, but it, not, that was the yeah. record, and we, we yeah.
1: both agreed on that
3: now i think I think
1: an, an interesting point um, uh, uh, is, as you mentioned, I, I project forward five to five and a half percent real return on stocks. Uh, Bob, for, it, for how long? Now? That's out for, for 10 years. 10 years. Um, you're about half that. Um,
3: I, you ever, I think we're less than uh, Are you than a little bit half half.
1: on the low twos? Are you in the upper one? I don't <laughs> remember what it is right now. Yeah. Um, but you know, certainly not uh, half, half or less. Um, and I think a lot of, uh, I said, and I mentioned this during our talk, a lot of our difference is you believe that CAPE will regress back to the mean. And I'm not so sure that it will. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there will be bear markets where it might go below or beyond. But will the new, so to speak, normal be the same one that existed, you know, from 1881 well, I, s- I saw
0: as, a, as just a member of the audience, I thought of it as two pretty interesting disagreements. One was how do you – I think you both agree to look at the P-E ratio in some form. And then the question is, well, how do you measure E? And then the second question is, well, does that thing reasonably vary over time and at what horizon? So is the P-E ratio today – should that be higher than the P-E ratio 50 years ago? I kind of find myself splitting the difference between you two in the following sense that I think the P-E ratio today probably should be higher than it was, say, 100 years ago. I think a lot has changed, and I really buy your argument about transaction costs. I also buy your argument that, or, or another argument I've heard, which is it's just safer to invest today and it's easier to diversify and so on. On the other hand, you look at Bob's chart and you say, well, wow, this thing does go out of control sometimes. And so there's got to be some degree of mean reversion. And so how do you – I think it's a really interesting challenge for all of us to think about how do you kind of disentangle that mean reversion on the one hand with the fact that the world changes at very long horizons. And so I took the kind of the cop out and sort of kind of tried <laughs> to split the difference between I, I, your other Another thing is that
3: nobody is really interested that I know of in understanding how accountants did their job in 1910 or 1920. <laughs> There are historians, I, I talked to one historian of accounting, but you know, they don't go into great depth. It, it, it's, it always struck me as odd that people are not as interested in history. You know, Jeremy, you agree with me that history is important. Oh, yeah. I mean, but most people never uh, and, bothered. Well, they didn't
2: care. Like This goes back to why in 1870 you talk about this, how the dividend pay ratio was in the 70s back in the early part of that. So they didn't really care about the accounting because they paid out all the earnings as dividends, whereas now the dividend pay ratio is much, much less.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean that's a good point. When you paid out most of your earnings as cash it, that, that was considered your earnings, you wouldn't have it otherwise. You now, there is ways to borrow and fake it and all that. We know that, but... Nonetheless, I think, I think you're making a very good point, Jeremy, that, that when you're only paying out 30% or 40% of your earnings as cash, where is the rest going? Now, if it goes at buybacks, that does require cash, but if it goes into investments, that could be good or bad, or what kind is it going into, etc. and so on. Earnings become more important.
2: One of the interesting things, I think, to break down, so you say it's going to be 5.5% real, and you start off with, if we go back to the dividend numbers, the dividend yield today is probably 1.8. A little, little lower than 2. A little bit lower than 2. So you then say on top of that 2%, you're going to get sort of 3%, 3.5% earnings growth as part of your real return.
1: Yes. So, so basically, yeah. so I, I take it this way. Let's, let's assume operating earnings are the way to look at it. Right now, we're selling it, 18 times operating earnings. That's a 5.5% return. So where is that five, how does that 5.5% come back to the shareholder? It either has to come back as a dividend or a capital gain. Um, I mean, if they misinvested, it won't result in a capital gain, but it has to come back one way or the other. Um, so I say that, you know, the dividend is to almost two um, um, uh, there. And the other three and a half percent, we're getting what almost two and a half percent buybacks. That's going to generate earnings per share growth, even if there's stagnation completely in in the firm, because it's just reducing the number of shares outstanding has to boost uh, that. And the other one percent is it's 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 growing over time by investing and and therefore uh, in, increasing its earnings that way. So. Yeah. That That's how I kind of break up that 5.5% into how it comes back to it. Jeremy, okay. one of the, yeah, the questions... Yeah, I'm interested in your yeah, comments the, on that, Jeremy. One of
0: the questions I had um, thinking about this is, how do you think about corporate earnings growth relative to the economy? So we, if we think about the economy as growing, or GDP growth as being, say, one5 or 2% real, what is... What, are, what is your assumption of corporate growth relative to the economy, and how do you think about that over the long
1: run? Well, theoretically, if we're talking about a state-state, the, the, the corporate, corporate growth earnings and everything like that has to grow at the same rate as the GDP. However, we've got to also remember when we're talking about earnings per share, and, and firms are buying back their shares... That's reducing the number of shares, increasing EPS. The multiple t- is not going up as fast as the EPS, and it is EPS that determines the price of stock. So you—that's how you can get that three and a half percent above the GDP while. Total corporate earnings may only be rising at one or two percent, and it's sort of global GDP,
2: not U.S. GDP, because well, profits <laughs> are probably not U.S. Let me just reintroduce everybody. We've got Robin Greenwood of HBS, Bob Schiller of Yale, Professor Siegel from Wharton. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, Bob, I want to sort of this sort of go back to if he's coming up with five and a half percent, and I yeah. we did some work preparing for your, your your discussion. I looking at a regression that we had done so using the cape ratio, showing about two point six percent as an estimate mm-hmm. from around today's capes. So, mm-hmm. And so if you take that 1.8% dividend yield and say there's only 80 basis points more on top of the dividend yield to get to 2.6, do you think earnings is going to be that subdued on top of the dividend yield to get around to 2.6? Well, they certainly could be.
3: Well, We have a trade war brewing. We have other kinds of discord. Uh, we have a, a f- fires in the Middle East. Well, let uh, me give you more ammunition.
1: Have, it's actually part of that is the P.E. ratio going down. So the return, yeah. right, I mean, we could still get that earnings growth, but if you're valuing that earnings growth at a lower rate, you're not going to get the return. And I, I, that right. regression to the mean is what I think is the major reason that's pulling you down from me.
3: See, I don't like to be a pessimist. I'm actually, I actually mean, keep asking for And I'm not that We're trying pessimistic. trying to push the debate. Yeah, but no, no. But, but, we, but this is an old conundrum that... Uh, do. Do uh, uh, public figures uh, try to dampen enthusiasm? Enthusiasm sounds good. In fact, I wrote a book called Animal Spirits, and economies are driven by that. Politicians have long felt that it's their job to boost animal spirits. So talking about uh, a possible catastrophe, one or or another, isn't... uh, isn't considered a very social thing to do.
1: I I, I want to say one thing, and I'm going to give Bob the kudos that he really does deserve. Um, Before Trump was elected, Bob was on CNBC, and he was asked, well, who's going to be better for the stock market? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? Trump uh, or Hillary. Now, the market clearly, the way it was reacting to the polls, did not like Trump, Um, but Bob's Said, I think Trump yeah. is going to be better for the market, and I questioned, And I said, Bob, you know the market's not saying that. And and and, and for thirty minutes,
2: he was right. For <laughs>
1: I'm going to give Bob all the credit he deserves. He was absolutely right. And back to remember, six months later, we were in New York and we being interviewed there, and we were both asked by the end of the year what, what what we thought the market was going to go up, and both you and I said yes. Um, yeah. And that was last year, but. That animal spirits and pro-business sentiment, we felt, was going to definitely permeate the market.
0: Wonder, yeah, I wonder whether markets have sort of extrapolated that, those spirits to, uh, too broadly into different settings in the sense that Trump delivered tax reform, that was good for business. Are we expecting that there's lots of other good news coming out for business that maybe people haven't even put words to yet, but they're just kind of expecting
1: well, do they need it? I mean, my my feeling is is the good news is out. We're we're at an eighteen sort of PE, and I think we can stay there. I mean, I look at my earnings. As I said, my earnings growth of three and a half percent real or five and a half is below. I, I looked at some of the Wall Street estimates for next year. Yeah. I'm the lowest by far, and even for then 2020, I'm the lowest. I mean, I don't. I, I agree with you. I don't see how these analysts are predicting eight to ten percent every. Where does that come from? That, that does lead to a steady state where corporate profits occupy a bigger and bigger, bigger share of the economy, which is not, is not feasible in the long run, really. Um, so but, so I, but that's why I scaled down to says, let me think what I think is feasible. Let's stay at this level. Let's give the 3.5% corporate. Everything then stays steady state. Now, I know the world's going to fluctuate crazy around that because of all the shocks to it. But at least I've got a long run that at least I can feel comfortable with.
0: Yeah, I mean, to me, in the long run, corporate earnings growth, outside of buybacks and so uh, per share reductions, has got to come from
1: productivity growth. And Well, even in, 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 in actual population growth. I, actually, it, the, it, it has to come from productivity. But the interesting thing is, I remember in growth theory, I know we've all had it, I don't know if we all remember, but it used to fascinated me. Remember one of the facets of growth theory was the amount of capital relative to output was constant in the long run. That meant that firms had to float shares and debt to produce the capital to produce that output. Whether that output came from population growth or from productivity, it had to be provided for. And therefore, there was always going to be shared dilution from that, and that's one reason why, in the long run, per-share real growth falls short—well, short, uh, well short actually—of the long-run GDP growth or even productivity growth, because of that need to provide the capital and therefore float those those shares. Well,
0: let me raise one more uh, kind of one-time bump that I think we've had over the last decade, which has been pretty stunning beyond the, the, the tax cuts, which is the emergence of the true multinational corporation and that being primarily a U.S. corporation. Mm-hmm. And so the share of profits coming from outside of the United States has gone way up. The U.S. has basically taken a huge share of that. Do we think that's going to continue? Is that something also that people are kind of extrapolating
1: forward? Well, you're absolutely right. I, I believe it's 40 it forty forty to 45% of S&P 500 profits now come from abroad. Which is amazing. I mean, twenty years ago it was ten percent. Um, I don't. I don't. Is that is that going to continue to rise? They're
3: uh, boycotting Americans. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, um, if they're boycotting American goods, as we that some may, if we engage in a trade war, that's that's going to be very, very, uh, very, 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 very hard. Um, I, I do think that uh, that there's a tremendous demand for um, what we, you know, the type of goods that are name brands. I mean, like China is is always so worried that you know there's going to be a bad actor that's going to pollute their milk or do something to that. They don't trust some of their own brands they'll trust procter and gamble or coca-cola or some they feel that that has more credibility than a lot of the state owned enterprises that are trying to get around that so that drive for the name brands now it's not just the us cuz europe has it too is is something that i think is there in the emerging markets because a, a lot of their own agents have cut corners and cheated and and and, and people don't trust them as much. I mean, name brands is a, is a lot about trust. I don't know what you think Unfortunately, about Unfortunately, Unfortunately,
3: trust seems to be, on, it, within the United States, seems to be declining. We have so many angry conspiracy theories and so much mistrust of our news media that it seems to me that doesn't portend for economic growth. You have to have a certain level of trust if you want uh, well, we don't
1: trust the government. I, I, we don't I,
3: trust the newspapers. And we don't... Uh, it's not just...
1: Uh, I think Jeremy's saying we trust
0: corporations. I'm not sure about that. Well, but.
1: I mean, do we trust name brands? Do we trust Procter & Gamble's Pampers and Dove Soap <laughs> Amazon and, to deliver and all Coca-Cola? Our. I mean, I mean... Yeah, but I don't know if the US,
0: the U.S. doesn't have a monopoly on that. I also trust Mercedes-Benz and Cartier. But these and, are the same
1: sort of name brands, either Europe or the United States, that can dominate the emerging world. I mean, India and China still has unbelievable growth that they can... It can I mean, China now is 28% per capita GDP of the United States. I think India is only at 12 right now. I mean, you just bring both of those to 50 Uh, And and you've you've got a middle class that is already four to five times the size of the United States and Europe. That's enormous. That's going to want these name brands.
2: We are going to continue this conversation. Uh, We have have to take a quick break. We are in New York City at the Jacobs-Levy Center Conference for Quantitative Finance. We continue the conversation. We come back after a short break.
3: This is a Business Radio special presentation of Behind the Markets. From the Jacobs-Levy
1: Center Conference in New York City. Here again are Jeremy Schwartz and Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel.
2: Welcome back to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, alongside co-host Jeremy Siegel. We're live from the annual Jacobs Levy Conference in New York City. Guests for the hour have been Bob Schiller, the Sterling Professor of Economics at Yale University, the winner of the 2013 Nobel Prize in Economics, along with Robin Greenwood, the George Gunn Professor of Finance and Banking at Harvard Business. Uh, we talked a lot about uh, market expectations, the CAPE ratio debate between Siegel and Schiller. Uh, Robin, you know, you're know you going to be presenting here just after the, uh, the conversation here. You have a paper called Bubbles for Fama. Maybe sort of preview for our listeners who aren't here at the conference, what are you going to be talking about? In, sure. In and actually, I
0: was as I was listening to uh, the debate earlier, I thought that maybe a more appropriate title, uh, and in particular in light of Bob's story about the uh, Nobel Prize, perhaps a more appropriate title for the paper would have been Fama versus Schiller. Um, <laughs> the, the paper is looking at um, stock price bubbles and really it may surprise your listeners, but the word bubble is a bit of a four-letter word among finance academics, and in fact, I regularly try to scrub any uh, academic work I have of the word bubble, and I do a search and replace for with other words. Um, and the reason, the reason it's a, a controversial term is because it's easy to use the term ex post, which is to say, after the fact, when prices have gone up a lot and then subsequently crashed, yeah, we can call that a bubble. And academics say, well, is there anything you can say ex ante? Meaning, is there anything you can say in advance when prices have gone up and really be quite sure that that something is a bubble? And so you might think that that would be a question that people have uh, done a lot of research on. And certainly uh, the two folks sitting to my left and right have thought about this topic a lot in the context of the overall stock market. What we did is we looked at U.S. industries going back to the 1920s and then global industries going back to the 1980s and asked just a very simple question, which is, if you have an industry that's gone up by 100% over a two-year period, when can you call that bubble a bubble? Can you call it a bubble? And is there, are there other features of the data, for example, issuance? Maybe you could measure the sentiment in some form. Maybe you could uh, look at the volatility and so on. Maybe there are other features of the data that would allow you to um, kind of capture whether that was a bubble episode or not. And the reason we have this title, Bubbles for Fama, is because I think that, uh, that distrust of the term bubble is best encapsulated by a variety of uh, Gene Fama quotes um, who really uh, objects pretty vehemently even to the use of the term.
3: I remember. You call it that nefarious term. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nefarious. So, Bob, are there bubbles that exist? Well, of course, we, we almost universally... Uh, talk about the internet bubble yeah. um and no one seems to so robin i mean object i mean things were crazy in two thousand i mean what what why why would there be a resistance to call that a a bubble
0: um well, I think you're asking the wrong person because I... You believe in him? Very, <laughs> I believe in him, and I think that's a, a, an we need,
1: apt... We need Jim Fama here to I, say why I, that was not above I think
0: that's <laughs> an apt term. I, I think if I had to take the other side, I, I would say, and, in, and many people have taken the other side on this, on this question. They've said, well, it could have turned out differently. And not only could it have turned out differently, it would have been reasonable to think that it could turn out differently and put some weight on that outcome... And therefore, prices at the time were probably right, or they were right given all the information that people in the market had. I don't believe that to be true. I think if you look at the craziness that was happening around that time, um, if you look at adding .com to your – one of my favorite stories is adding .com to your name popped the stock by about 70%. Just
1: like blockchain today, they're doing the same
0: thing. Exactly. So call it, yeah, calling yourself uh, a blockchain business today um, adds, uh,
1: seems to add some value. Uh, it's already been done by one company that had nothing to do with blockchain.
3: Well, yeah. people don't even know what blockchain is. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's not even, it isn't actually precisely defined. Uh, it's yeah. something about distributed storage. Yes. But what exactly defines something as blockchain
0: the number of parallels between the uh, the blockchain phenomena and the dot-com are it, it's amazing actually. So you just listed one, but um, there's also a huge amount of issuance. There's a lot. So for example, a lot of these um, the ICOs, initial uh, currency going, offerings, in, initial currency offerings. So people going public. There's a lot of volume, much like there was during dot-com. A lot of trading. Um, there is a lot of media attention. This is something that Bob talks about a lot in his work. Um, and just you just kind of keep checking down the list. And even if you look at the price pattern, it happened over roughly the same interval of time. It's, it's uncanny yeah. how similar the episodes are.
2: So is that bubble... Deflated. It's down. A lot of them are down. Uh, Bitcoin, I think, is from the twenty thousand range to the sixty 000, six thousand range. Some and shit. the others are
1: down much more. Actually, almost they, all. But of they them might still down. go they back
3: m- up. They might be. Nobody <laughs> knows for sure. Yeah.
1: Well, Petcom, uh, which is usually given as the uh, bubble of, uh, you know, maybe it'll be resurrected <laughs> at some future date, and give uh, and 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 give the value of that. These are yeah. things that
3: we keep renaming. They had another word, you won't remember it. Speculative orgy. Okay. That's kind of fallen out of favor. I don't know yeah, why. I wonder why. <laughs> Maybe the word orgy. The, oh, Who no. knows? <laughs> but there's there's another word, irrational exuberance. Right, well. Now that's toned down, right? That that sounds more uh, less controversial that there is irrational exuberance. That's not a, it's not a forecast for the market in as clear a sense. Yeah, you know, it's inter-
1: I, I did a paper um, about 15 years ago on bubbles. Uh, and uh, with the following interesting thesis, um, if you looked at 1929, and this was done before the dot com, and some of those other peaks, um, and had you bought then, yes, you would have gotten a lower return, but not a bad return. If you held on for yes, a Yes, if long you'd time. held on a long time. So I almost said one way to interpret market history is that people occasionally reach the rational price, but it's usually depressed. In other words, too much of an equity premium occasionally gets to the right amount, but it spends the rest of its time too low. That's a dis- very,
0: That's a very glass half uh, half full yeah. view of the all that. I mean, world. I mean, but it's a way <laughs> can that's that. that's just, sure you know, with it. move
1: the benchmark by which we view sure. the market. So it gets, you know, people get appropriately excited given forward returns only occasionally and most of the time sink into depression. Is an, instead of most of the time it's okay, and then a few times they're irrationally exuberant. Because if you take a look at the equity premium being so much higher than so many models predict, maybe you know you can you could flip it and call it uh, you could call it the other way if you want to.
2: Do we have a term for irrational despondency, or is it uh, well, you got Bob, another we? what
1: What is the opposite
3: oh, of irrational what, what, exuberance? What is the term for uh, you would say investor funk maybe yeah, or? Well, well, The the bubbles are more interesting. (laughs) Unreasonable (laughs) despite,
1: but (laughs) But they go in the other way too. No, no. Look, the negative bubbles are just as, you know, in March of two thousand and nine, or let's take July of nineteen thirty-two, when the Dow was at forty-one, after being at three hundred and eighty, you know, two and a half years earlier. I mean, those are really exciting moments. (laughs) For potential,
0: yeah, but they they can always. It's worth bearing in mind that they can uh, turn out differently. So, uh, just I always point for my students or my MBA students to the example of Japan, uh, where the valuation dropped pretty dramatically uh, at the end of the 1980s and really did not recover. In fact, continued to dip for a very very long time. Japan was the tech bubble for the whole
2: market. Uh, didn't it reach yeah. the peak
1: in '89 and then '90s it
3: dropped right. It peaked it's in '89. at the very end of '89. Yeah, end of, end of, of yeah, yeah, right.
1: So just a decade later, it it and it got to thirty nine thousand on the uh, um, the Nikkei, and the Nikkei is now what? Thirty 20. years
2: later,
0: we're still half that level. We're half that
1: level. Thirty years. later. Isn't that amazing? Right.
0: So the buy on dips strategy didn't work there.
3: That's called the lost generation, but it's more than one generation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
2: Let me just reintroduce everybody here. We've got Professor Siegel, Robin Greenwood of Harvard, Bob Schiller of Yale. And so, Robin, you were talking about bubbles for Schiller versus Fama, um, but uh, you also have done a lot of work and you talk about issuance as one of the size uh, indicators of a bubble, but you've done some work on credit markets uh, and, and maybe, and Professor, you talked about forward-looking returns on bonds being worse than stock uh, in terms of the lower expected returns, but maybe talk about your work on credit markets and issuance.
0: Sure, so we were inspired by uh, a lot of the work we'd seen in the stock market uh, that said that periods of froth were accompanied by a lot of issuance. And we were looking in the uh, credit markets and trying to quantify whether such an effect existed there. And we found that a, a very simple variable, the share of debt that's issued that's high yield, actually had remarkable forecasting power for returns on the credit market. And so if you look at That The credit markets, maybe your listeners don't know them quite as well as they're familiar with the history of the stock market, but actually has had pretty sizable booms and busts as well. So, for example, major junk bond boom uh, during the 1980s, Michael Milken, uh, another boom actually associated with dot-com, but a little bit later in timing associated with telecom, and then, of course, another credit boom uh, just prior to the financial crisis. And all of those periods are times when um, credit pricing was extremely aggressive, and uh, the share of issuance that was high yield, really a lot of junky kind of crappy issuers coming into the market was very, very high. So a lot of people have asked me what, what's happening today in, in the credit space. Um, actually, the high yield share doesn't look too bad. Mm. It looks kind of close to the historical average. That said, there's a very curious thing happening in the market right now, which is the triple B share mm. yeah. is at an all-time high. So what are the triple Bs? The triple Bs are the worst quality credit that's not yet It's still investment junk. grade. It's right. still investment grade. That's right. not yet There's junk. a lot of work around this right now. Exactly. So it's a lot of, I, I call it the tinderbox, right? So the question is, um, how close are we to kind of a, a little fire lighting? Because what happens when you hit a recession, for example, is that the triple Bs tend to get downgraded at a much higher rate than, say, your historical average. And then you have real pricing pressure, uh, in, in, in those markets. Uh, so I think we're actually in a very unusual point in history in that the junkiest issuers aren't coming to market, but you're seeing a lot of these kind of relatively but, but low but quality. Robin,
1: isn't part of that is that we have so many fewer A issuers, A-plus issuers, than we used to? I mean, it, I think there's only a, uh, less than one hand the number of people that are still A. the U.S. government isn't even AAA anymore. I mean, so in a way, everything has been pushed down. Maybe that's one of the reasons, maybe just one, that so much are, you know, accumulating in that B-plus range.
0: Yeah, that, 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 might, that might be right. It's certainly true that the number of AAA issuers is de minimis yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a handful between AAA and triple B. Yes, right. um, and so there's still. Uh, I don't think it automatically implies anything about the triple B share per se, but that, that that's probably going on uh, going on as well. Uh, that being said, even if that's true, if there's a wave of defaults, that's going to be a huge amount of debt coming into the junk bond markets and pretty si- uh, pretty sizable pricing pressure.
2: Any other commentary on the spreads in that in that market? Because those those have come down, and I def, I definitely have seen a lot of charts on, you know, where you are in the cycle, what share is is credit, and you know, is there any other commentary there?
1: Yeah, it spreads. That's that, that's a common indicator of stress yeah. or pre-stress uh, onto the market.
0: Yeah, this this like I said, the spreads are tight. The spreads are pretty tight, but the, um, uh, but not. Abnormally tight relative to a long history. Um, And uh, issuance, if you read the commentary, the issuance looks like all of of the junk is coming to market. But then if you try to measure it in the data, it doesn't look that bad. Um, So I would say, if I had to draw a historical analogy, we are not at 2006. We're probably more like 2004. Uh, Which is not really super comforting, but it's... Uh, well, wasn't that a it, little more oh, it
1: yesterday on CNBC said we had two more years left or two years ago? I, I forgot what it was. They said we got two more years left in this expansion. It's, I mean that's arbitrary, but that's been the buzz uh, around. Uh,
0: it, It's always comfortable to forecast two years out because nobody's going to remember what you said two years ago.
3: Um, Yeah, you learned such tricks.
2: So, Bob, you're working on a new book you mentioned uh, at the conference here. Do you want to tell our listeners what uh, you've been a a prolific author, but your your latest project?
3: Well, I, I gave my presidential address at the American Economic Association called Narrative Economics, and now I'm developing that into a book. But the idea is that economists think it's part of their profession, that they never talk about what people are thinking or what their stories are. Every other profession <laughs> seems to be more warm to that. I documented that in my paper. They talk about narr- especially journalists, I love to talk about the narrative today is something or other. They are acutely aware that everybody wants to talk about Donald J. Trump. Whether you like him or not, you have to agree he's captured the narrative, or captured a big yeah. part of it. Now, economists don't like to get in. It's partly because they don't want to be political, and that's that's a good thing. We want to be nonpartisan, so we, we think it's like sex. You know, we don't we don't talk about that either. We don't talk about these embarrassing ideas that drive people's decisions. But I'm arguing that we ought to, hmm. uh, and that we we can try to be as nonpartisan. You know, you just talk in a non-insulting tone. You don't take sides. Uh, but I think these narratives are driving have always been driving markets, from the roaring 20s and the uh, success narrative of that time to the Great Depression to the, uh, the narrative of uh, economic failure. It was, it was the age of communism in the United States. It was a time when people thought the capitalist system has failed when people, when there were lots of beggars on the streets, and the, and the reason there were lots of beggars on the streets is because people actually gave to them mm. a lot because they felt that this is the new world. That was a narrative of that time.
0: People use narratives, I think, in the stock market to interpret new data. So you have a, a, a narrative that explains the facts that you under, as you understand them today. and When new facts come in... I think we're always trying to evaluate, are those consistent with the narrative that we've built up in our minds about what's happening, or are they inconsistent? Do we need to adopt a new narrative? But absolutely, people are... Trying to interpret facts—it's it's the only—it's a natural human way to interpret facts.
2: I wonder what the big main narratives of the market are today. So I'd say one dominating narrative is that Amazon's going to eat the world, and retail's <laughs> going dead, and tech and Google oh, and right, Facebook right. are eating the world, like you know, are changing the world. Any other besides Amazon eating the world? Uh, what are the narratives you guys see out there,
3: Bob? What do you think?
1: It Trump? I mean, is that a that yeah, a narrative? the narrative? Yeah. The other
3: thing is it, there's a, uh, I, I think it's still weak, but it could get strong the narrative of uh, robots replacing jobs. That was a very strong narrative in the Great Depression. People don't remember that. They were talking about robots in, uh, in the Great Depression. They had r- airplanes that would be flown by a robot, so they said. We're finally I mean, what, getting there years well, it was some sort of autopilot that they were developing. Like the drones uh, today. They talked, if you read their newspapers, they talked as if it was now. But that's coming back. I think it, it represents a big fear it's, a, it's, a, it's related to a fear of inequality it's a fear that uh, I think this is helping drive Bitcoin. Hmm. Now this may be a leap that you don't want to take, but the idea is that you have to be you have to own the robots, you have to be a, a big shot type, but they, they don't feel that they can and they worry. Now, but, now it's, why would people... I mean,
1: in the Great Depression, when wages were 20 cents an hour, that's when you're not going to use robots,
3: and you're going to use real people that are unemployed. Well, that sounds crazy. The narratives
2: they, aren't always right.
3: <laughs> they, the narrative there was, we live in the power age. Did you ever hear that? Nobody... They thought that power equipment was 10,000 times stronger in 1930 than it was in 1900. It's just... The, horse, they did it. They ca- the horsepower of the capital stock of the... We don't talk in those terms. You know how many horsepower was installed in 1930? It was like 10 billion kilowatts. I don't know how they measure it. Right. And that was definitely a powerful narrative then. And we have totally forgotten that because we have no reason to think that they were right. Uh, Or that that what they had to say was at all interesting. But they,
0: Bob, is that a carryover from the narrative of the 1920s driving the stock market, of electrification and the new America, where everyone every every light every home will have access to electricity?
3: Right. So that narrative didn't seem to suggest job loss. Uh, The narrative of we've got radio now, we have electric refrigerators. an electric refrigerator is not replacing, well, the Iceman has to find a new job. It, it, it wasn't presented as such a dangerous situation until the. And now it may be because unemployment hit rate hit almost 25%. Maybe that's
1: why they feared it. It was part of the, a long run trend, not with unemployment. And they
3: thought that it would last. Yeah, right.
1: Yeah, right. So now that at 3.8% unemployment. There's more job openings than unemployed. And that's why this thing
3: is latent. This whole uh, robots taking over your job is a latent fear. It hasn't. But if we ever get into another serious recession, it'll come back. Well,
1: it's in, they're in the truckers and the drivers. That, that I think, we, we talk about four million people on the road that make their life on the road. Yeah, that's uh, a lot that, of that, jobs. That uh, the autonomous car is going to put out of... Uh, and autonomous uh, ships, too. Autonomous, and, uh, yeah. I mean, Airplanes. That people talk... <laughs> but just a minute. The, tru- the truth, Bob, You and we're all economists here, is that uh, that was argued back in the 18th century. I'm not talking about truth. I'm talking uh, about narratives. but, but, but <laughs> Right. But, and none of those things ever came about. Well,
0: a narrative always has a kernel of truth.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you got it. You got it. It causes job shifts, but it never caused gross job losses if we go through history.
3: Well, it might have temporary job losses. Temporary shifts that people
1: need to retool, so to speak. But
3: those shifts can be very painful. Right. And they didn't have the imagination to think of all the things that we buy today, that we pay for. Uh, They didn't think that you have all of your children in psychotherapy (laughs) (laughs) and (laughs) and taking lessons...
1: Or that everyone would be playing video games and someone would have to make them for everyone else. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is I often tell my classes that today in a developed world, you need to work less than one hour a day to get what's called the basics of life, which is minimal food. In the advanced world. In the advanced world. In other words, minimal food, nutrition, and shelter. Minimal, nothing like you, you mean and, uh, rice and beans. Yeah, I mean, but <laughs> calories and protein enough to survive. Cabbage and peanut butter. Yeah, I mean, but but think about that. I mean, you know, ancient man. It was his whole preoccupation was just getting food and minimum shelter. Yeah, uh, and you know, and and that was just the minimal. That's what I mean, and that's what animals still do. I mean, that so we've gone all the way to so, that being provided in in 10% of the time and yet the other 90% of the time we got employment from everything else that we no, I wasn't well, saying so, these narratives are but but i mean people don't <laughs> seem to see the big picture so well, so
0: earlier i thought you were uh, glasses half full but I, now i think you're saying that the <laughs> stocks for the, the long now now uh, now i yeah, think uh, now i think you're saying that the, the the benchmark is uh is is going back to a so and gr- i'm optimistic uh, No, no, no. uh,
1: I'm showing the march of time has not produced. (laughs) It gives us what we, you know, in one hour what we used to have in in an eight-hour day
3: and the other seven hours we have for enjoyment. But people are worried about the concentration of power. And the fear that it might be well, a that's surveillance issue. state where the machines are watching your every move. Well, that's move.
1: another issue. Yes. Well, I think it's
3: related. I mean, it could you know. be
1: related, and we, we and that, could talk yeah. about it. That, that
2: is what we have down to our final two minutes, but this is one of the fears you'd say people think that the market is being held up by tech, and is there going to be something that right. knocks the tech stocks right. off their pedestal? and? Uh, is it going to be regulation coming down on Google and Amazon and all their, you know, inflows and Do you think there should life?
1: be regulation, Bob, or Robin? On, 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 this on, isn't on, a good closing
3: note. Two uh, minutes. I, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not necessarily.
1: I mean, um, I think you've got to be really careful about this. I mean, because, you know, we have tech through the private enterprise system. It's not something government plan, and it... Provides most people with a lot of enjoyment and utility. Yes, there's some downsides, but 30, I think we have 30 a, seconds you know, from every natural to close.
0: natural monopoly, and I think it's something that the world hasn't really seen before, which is real economies of scale in all of these businesses. And so it's natural that they be large, yet that gives them this incredible pricing power. I think that's kind of going to be one of the economic challenges uh, of the next decade to figure out, and it's probably going to be more than just Amazon and Google. There'll be other companies. Uh, that have that kind of economies of scale and reach, reach dominance.
3: And we want to buy them yeah. <laughs> at this point. <laughs> Early. <in history. laughs> yeah. Robin, any,
2: uh, everybody knows Bob and Jeremy where to find their research. Robin, any
0: quick uh, comments on where to find your work to stay in touch with what you do? Uh, sure, the, the Internet, and we also run at uh, Harvard, we have a uh, behavioral finance and financial stability page where we put out some of these market sentiment measures and uh, industry sentiment measures, so check it out. This has been great. Uh,
3: I have an online Coursera free financial markets course, which you can take.
2: Very good, Bob. <laughs> Thank you. Professor Siegel, thanks for, uh, for co-hosting here. We've been at the Jacobs-Levy Center for Quantitative Finance here in New York. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Follow us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week,
0: everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.